from the EAH team. Welcome to Everything About Hydrogen. This is the podcast that explores the world of hydrogen and its derivative technologies and interrogates how it is changing the world of energy as we know it. Join hosts Patrick Malloy, manager in the Breakthrough Technologies Group at RMI, Alicia Eastman, President of Intercontinental Energy, and Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, as the team speak to some of the most innovative and exciting players in the industry. If you're a fan of the show, we would love if you'd leave us a five-star review for everything about hydrogen wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help boost us up the charts and help more people find us. And with that, I'll leave it to the team and let's get on with the show. Hey, Patrick, how are you doing? Not so bad, Alicia. Um, you know, traveling the world, the, the, the hydrogen universe never rests, apparently. So uh, prepping for various conferences over this busy, busy month. What about yourself? Yeah, I think you're in my neck of the woods, which is good. Mm-hmm. We will, we'll be able to catch up. <laughs> um, I am um, pretty much obsessed with the IMO and MEPC 80 coming up. So I have been... Uh, digging into that but otherwise all yeah everything is moving along same same <laughs> being very busy but uh, as always super exciting and you know it just seems to get better and better uh who do we have on today oh well i'm glad you asked because we <laughs> have uh, a few folks uh from from my neck of the woods um so we have uh apex clean energy um and we have scott Weiss, who's the uh, Senior Vice President for Corporate uh, Strategy and Engagement. And we have Ashley Cotting, who is the Senior Manager for Green Fuels Marketing. And for those who don't know uh, Apex, um, Apex has been around for quite a while and has been developing a lot of renewables projects, uh, quite prominently, I suppose, large wind projects, um, and recently has moved into the uh, green molecular business. And uh, one of the reasons I think I'm really excited to talk to, to, to Scott and Ashley is because, you know, this transition from being a renewables developer and into the molecules market is going to be an interesting business case and proposition that, that I think people talk a lot about, but most developers haven't actually done it yet. And these are some folks who have and are building some steel in the, in the ground ready projects as we speak. So um, yeah, it's going to be a fun one. Yeah, sounds really exciting. Scott, Ashley, great to have you join us today. Could you maybe start off by telling us a little about yourselves and also a little bit about Apex and uh, the journey you've undertaken into the hydrogen space? That sounds great. Um, And thank you very much for having us on this podcast. We're excited to be here. Um, So I'll kick off. Um, Scott Weiss, I am Senior Vice President of Corporate Strategy at Apex. Um, Apex is a renewable energy company headquartered in Charlottesville, Virginia. We were founded in 2009 um, and have a a great company with a little over 400 full-time professionals today. Um, Our track record is that we've commercialized right around 8 gigawatts of renewable energy projects in the U.S., which is about $10 billion worth of capital investment. And we do everything there is to do in the renewable energy lifecycle. We originate new projects, we develop, we own, we operate, we find the offtake, we find the financing. 
Um, so I've been at Apex for about 10 years um, since we were uh, a much earlier version of ourselves and um, many years on the, on the financing side, project finance, corporate finance. And then a few years ago, as the world was sort of hitting the next phase of decarbonization, launched our corporate strategy team, which for the last couple of years has been very focused on green hydrogen and green fuels. And I will pass to Ashley to introduce herself. Thanks, Scott. Um, yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having us on. Uh, my name is Ashley Cotting, and I'm on the business development team at Apex. So I joined in 2020, and my role was primarily focused on negotiating power purchase agreements for the wind and solar projects that Apex was developing. And through that, I got to work on one of our transactions with a company called Plug Power, where Apex uh, worked with Plug Power, which is a at the time vertically integrating their business. So they were going from hydrogen fuel cell provider to producing their own hydrogen for those fuel cells. And they wanted that to be a green product. So they reached out to Apex because they knew we had a large development portfolio of wind and solar projects. And we worked on a transaction in Texas where a project that Apex was developing um, outside the Dallas-Fort Worth area is going to be directly connected to a new hydrogen facility that Plug Power is building. So it was a behind-the-meter transaction, really first of its kind in the U.S., and that's how um, I and Apex kind of got our first experience in the green fuel space of how to put a project like that together. And so after that, I started working on all of our green fuels projects, both from a project execution standpoint and then also from a um, green hydrogen offtake standpoint. And I think for us, as a renewable energy company, we're very mission-driven as an organization looking for what we can do from a decarbonization standpoint. And so we sit on a portfolio today of a little more than 60 gigawatts of development stage renewable energy projects across the country which puts us as one of the largest renewable energy companies in the U.S. And so to the point that Ashley was making, we started to receive a number of inbound phone calls from chemical companies and transportation companies looking to convert the renewable energy that we own and convert it into green hydrogen and green fuels, whether that's to be used locally or eventually exported to other parts of the world. So because we sit on so much renewable energy and we're mission-driven, we feel like we have almost an obligation to help apply our skill set to help advancing and launching this industry. And one of the things that we learned coming out of the plug power transaction, one was how to put the pieces together, which I'm sure we'll get into as we keep going here. And the other was just to take a step back and appreciate that 75% of greenhouse gas emissions don't come from electricity. And so everything we've been doing in the history of our company is in one part of the uh, decarbonization sector. And we're going to need some type of green molecule to help decarbonize those other sectors. And so, you know, given the, the skills and people that we have working here, um, it felt like the, the right and next evolution for our company. Well, given uh, your company's significant experience in developing renewable energy, what was the real driving factor? I know that hydrogen became very popular. A lot of people were asking about it. But what, what made you decide to jump and engage with the hydrogen market? I think there were a couple things. You know, from the heritage of the company, which is very entrepreneurial, you know, rather than, you know, studying something for a couple of years, we just like to get in there and start working on it. And so that was really how the plug power transaction came to be, that they were looking for someone that had renewable energy skills. We were looking for someone that had green hydrogen skills. And so 
for a year, we just collaborated back and forth, and we were teaching each other, listening to each other, learning from each other about how these pieces can fit together. That transaction eventually was a, a successful financial transaction for us. You know, we are a for-profit company, and so the idea of this was great. Let's see where we can do this again, and maybe do it multiple times or at an even larger scale. Um, so there's a, a clear, you know, business financial reason that we're interested. Um, I mentioned the mission-driven uh, reason a few minutes ago, and and that really is a driving factor for us. How do we use the skill sets of the people that work at this company? How do we use the renewable energy that we own and just do the most that we can with it from a decarbonization standpoint? And then, you know, the world is just demanding it. It's, it's moving in a direction where markets are developing, supply chains are developing. We are one piece of that puzzle. And we recognize from the renewable side how these pieces fit together, the core aspects of developing projects, so real estate and interconnection the commercial aspects of off-taking and financing, how to commercialize various energy technologies. And so, you know, these were all elements that helped launch our strategy. When we looked at what we learned from Plug, there are two key elements. We sort of mapped the country, our portfolio, where would a good green hydrogen project go to us? And two of the things that jumped out to us are the cost of the renewable energy makes up 60 to 70% of the cost of hydrogen. So the way to make it most cost competitive is find the best wind and solar resources that we can. You know, good news, the core business that we've been working on for the last 15 years has been doing just that, seeking the best wind and solar wherever we can find it. The second, which is a little more unique to hydrogen, is how do you move it from the place that it can actually be produced to the place that it can actually be consumed. In the electricity sector, we often just, we deliver electricity into the grid and then the grid moves it around. And so we're the beneficiaries of the electric grid. And that's wonderful. In most molecule-based businesses, there are pipeline networks and there's an existing infrastructure that can move around where energy is produced to where it can be consumed. For hydrogen, that doesn't really exist. So we looked at trucking, we looked at rail, and the one that is most interesting to us is the idea of using pipelines, albeit um, new dedicated hydrogen pipelines. And so uh, at the start of last year, we, um, we've been working on it for a couple of years with partners in Aries and Epic Midstream, but we announced a gigawatt scale project that we have been working on in Texas. The idea of taking advantage of the best wind and solar resources untapped in the U.S. and then moving those via a brand new dedicated hydrogen pipeline to the port of Corpus Christi, where it can be consumed either domestically in the U.S. or as a port for um, export. So a lot of those learnings came out of actually working on the, the transaction with Plug and the Young Wind project, um, and now we're just applying it at an even larger scale. And that pipeline, I imagine you'll be able to change the compression so you can use that as storage, essentially. That's right. So, you know, the vision of the pipeline is it's running parallel to an existing epic midstream pipeline, which is incredibly helpful when you're thinking about multi-hundred mile rights of way. And then that's right. Storage is a really complicated aspect. That's another one that's not perfectly solved for hydrogen. And so we do have the ability to use compression to pack the line. That's not weeks or months types of storage, but that is hourly or maybe one or two days 
which helps um, even out the flow and delivery of hydrogen into the port um, and then for potential export facilities. It, it, it would be remiss of me not to ask this question, given this, you know, the stage you guys are at with, you know, developing these projects and obviously the work you've done with Plug previously as well. Your renewable energy background, wind and solar portfolio, you've been doing this a long time. What was the hardest part in terms of moving into the, the molecules market from that electron focused and something that you've done for, you know, in a lot of different places? I think maybe, Ashley, you and I should both answer this one. <laughs> I think some of the hardest parts actually are not, I mean, I, I, there's some core technology pieces, learning about things like compression, learning about things like the flow of molecules through pipelines. That's new, but I think that can be learned. I think one of the hardest parts is almost a, a human capital cultural challenge where we're blending renewable energy and electricity with molecules and oil and gas. And although they're typically bucketed under the broader um, umbrella of, of energy, these are two markets that function very differently. And so how do we work together, sort of cross industry, trust each other, learn how to communicate purely the conversions of megawatt hours into kilograms, into MMBTU, into all other types of metrics. It's, it's complicated and what is really helpful about the project that we're working on, and I'm sure other projects are finding great success and others are, are struggling a little bit, but just the, the three partners that we have, we all have learned how to trust each other and how to work together in a productive manner. And I, I think that um, goes a really long way into delivering a successful project. I agree with th those kinds of challenges of figuring out how to work across different subsectors of the energy industry has been challenging, but I think also really rewarding. My other kind of personal, most difficult journey is a little more wonky than Scott's, but there's a lot of rules about how you move electricity from where it's generated to an actual consumer of that electricity. Those rules exist at a state level. They exist at a grid operator level of how you can actually configure that type of project. And so learning how you can and can't do an arrangement behind the meter or co-located across the U.S. has been, I would say, probably what I've spent. Uh, I spent most of 2020 on that conundrum and have since been learning about it for each state. I think a lot of people saw the success of co-locating the Young Wind Project with a new hydrogen facility and said, great, let's do that everywhere. Uh, and unfortunately, it's not quite that simple. So kind of digging into those regulations and understanding the challenges around it has been another really, really difficult part that I think is new for Apex because we haven't been a load before in these regions. We've always been the generator. So, so maybe moving moving slightly forward in, in, in the sequence here, because you've talked about obviously the creation of these green molecules and, and, and then obviously there's conversions and as we've uh, just discussed, what's, what are the areas of the market that are most interesting? Like what are the offtake segments that you're getting most maybe um, inbounds on and maybe which ones are the most credible as we, as we stand here today in 2023 with uncertainty over 45V and various other things? Um, yeah, it's a great question. And I think, you know, when you, when you see headlines about hydrogen and, read about where people say it could go. There's 101 potential applications for it. And 
as you, to your point, Patrick, start thinking about the actual credibility of those, you get this funnel that kind of narrows down. So there are some things like heavy industry that I just see as being maybe second generation off takers because there are technology advancements we need to make to be able to move hydrogen as a carrier and crack it back and then use that as a fuel. There's, you know, in things like steel and cement making, it's not a one-to-one change to put hydrogen in where you currently use a different fuel. So to me, as you start looking at um, end uses that we can actually execute on today with the technology available today, the next thing that becomes the biggest challenge is price sensitivity. So there are refineries that use hydrogen today where it's an easy one-to-one change, but those are maybe more cost-sensitive customers because you know, we've talked to folks who run refineries and they say, what is the benefit for me at the end of the day to make that change? I'm paying for a fuel at a premium to what I get it for today. And there's no, at least in the US, there's no kind of carrot that comes with that. There's not the demand side incentive. So what's been interesting as we get further into understanding the market is seeing how those demand side carrots help advance off-taker discussions. So in places like Europe, um, where you see a demand-side subsidy and some more clarity around that demand-side subsidy than we maybe have on the PTC in the US right now, that's where we're seeing a lot of interest. That kind of lends itself to moving hydrogen as ammonia. We have now an idea of how your carbon intensity is going to be calculated. So Europe is a market where we see a lot of interest. I would say um, we're getting a lot of interest from Asia as well, where you have some governments like Japan that are willing to help maybe bridge a cost gap between what it costs to make it and get it to Japan and what it costs to buy that maybe from a fossil fuel source instead. So that, I think, is sort of where these things are going to go. And then from there, you start looking at the different types of uses. So if we're moving it to Europe as ammonia, you know, is it going to get cracked back into hydrogen because a lot of their goals around importing hydrogen specifically. Whereas in Asia, you might be using it for co-firing in a coal-fired power plant, for example. So I think that there's a lot of different ways it could go, but right now that's kind of what's bubbling to the top in the conversations that we're having with folks. That's really interesting that you're speaking in almost... Uh, envious tones about Europe and Europe's regulations, because uh, living here, most are very jealous of the PTC and and how simplified everything is in the United States. And isn't it great that they just come out with a law and it's just so simple, black and white, easy to deal with? You know, I, I laugh because, of course, like I know it's not simple at all. It's really difficult and people have to go really fast to get it because who knows what's going to happen in a year's time. We, we have the shortest time horizon of, of even amongst other countries that are, that are, <laughs> that are so um, politically polarized. But anyway, uh, it would seem that the PTC and other tax credits that were announced um, through this, through the uh, IRA, I mean, it's substantially accelerated a lot of interest, but what does that meant for your projects? Um, I hear you talking about, Europe and and Japan, but is it this affecting you positively to produce in the United States for U.S. markets? Absolutely. The IRA is an enormous benefit uh, to launching of clean hydrogen in the U.S. Um, The $3 per kilogram subsidy on green hydrogen 
it, it's an absolute game changer. It has the potential to, I think, really launch the industry. What it does is, you know, without it, green hydrogen is is certainly at a meaningful premium to blue and to green, uh, blue and gray. And even with it, it's likely still at some premium, but it really narrows that gap and it makes it much more commercially viable in conversations with off-takers. So, you know, to what degree are end customers willing to pay a premium? It, it certainly eases that conversation considerably. We're obviously still waiting on guidance to come out. There are, there are questions around, you know, a, a number of topics, additionality, regionality, time matching, etc. And so we'll look forward to the guidance coming out um, when it does. You know, when we first saw this in, in uh, 2020, three years ago, we were able to take a point of view as a company that we believe this is going to be a thing, whether IRA passes or not. And so we started making investments back in 2020 into the projects that we are now um, looking to commercialize. And so that early investment is is really bearing fruit. And um, some of that was just, you know, the vision of the company is just don't let policy, like the world is heading where it's heading and policy will will always evolve. But if we believe we have excellent projects, then we'll make the investments um, without it. So in the in the absence of guidance right now, we're continuing to progress projects, and then, then I think you know as that guidance comes out, then the commercialization process is going to become a lot more clear for how much of that credit applies to which individual projects. You mentioned an interesting point um, being in Europe. You know, this is sort of the first time, at least from a renewables company, we're able to do things like export renewable energy which is kind of a wild concept to think about. What we're talking about doing here is taking a sunny day in Texas or the wind in Texas, converting it into a fuel and then sending it to go power factories in Germany or Asia. It, you know, it, it's, a, it's sort of a really fascinating thing when you think about it. So in order to do that, though, it's not just U.S. law. It's the laws around the world that to the extent that they can be synced up together then it makes for a, a better and smoother global economy as this is produced and traded and moved from one country to another. So yeah, we're looking very much forward to IRA guidance coming out and then just continued work with you know companies around the world in order to, to be able to meet the demands with what we can produce here in the US. You know, I suppose following on, we, we've had a lot of you know, very positive movements. There's obviously a lot of momentum in the space more generally now. I, I, I think one of the questions that we probably still need to, to kind of uh, understand is, is what are the, the real challenges that you think are holding back development, certainly here in the US, but also maybe to broaden it a little bit, are, are there factors that are holding back this market that could have easy solves from, from your perspective or your engagements in the market thus far? So maybe just to frame this one up, I would think about, you know, there are challenges, you know, what I would say more broadly, though, is about the opportunity, which we should probably come back to at the end. On the challenges side, um, there are some core development challenges. They relate to transmission. They relate to enough land to secure enough renewable energy resources to water use. There are challenges related to the financing, which we just talked about, um, and those are we're still waiting on the guidance and certainty around the implementation of the IRA. And then also these are massive projects. So how do you put the financing packages and capital stacks together? 
And then maybe the last is just the supply chain. So, you know, it has been what it has been over the last couple of years with global supply chains. Here's the supply chain, you know, looking to ramp up around the world. And so how do we launch that chicken and egg, give certainty to manufacturers to invest in their manufacturing facilities in order to bring costs down? So I I would say these are the major challenges. I think, Ashley, maybe you can talk a little bit more about some of the development ones. Um, to start? Sure. So uh, maybe starting with transmission, which outside of hydrogen, I think is our favorite um, topic to bring attention to. You know, in the US, a lot of the interconnection queues are so backed up that it's taking, you know, five, six years to get your study back to understand if and how you can interconnect. And I talked about this a little before, but In Texas, we're fortunate we can um, directly connect our generator and load relatively simply. Once you start looking at pretty much any other market in the U.S., that gets a lot more challenging. So you end up having to go through the interconnection queue, even though you're bringing both pieces of the puzzle to kind of connect them for you. So that six-year study timeline and sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars of network upgrades um, becomes a really big challenge for any project that you're trying to build, especially if you're trying to do it at scale. So being able to get through interconnection queues faster with more certainty on your upgrades is going to be a really important part of building this out across the U.S., And then I think the other uh, one that Scott hit on was land availability. It's going to take a lot of education with project communities where we're trying to build these facilities about what this new to them technology is, how it works, what are the safety concerns, how are we mitigating them. I think that in Texas, for the project that we're working on now, those have been more straightforward conversations because they see it as a fuel. It's you know very much akin to the oil and gas industry that's been there for a long time. But as we start looking at other regions with good wind and solar resource, that's something that's definitely at the front of our minds um, at Apex when we're when we're developing these types of projects. Do you guys do any partnerships with First Nations or Native American populations? There's a lot of overlap, you know, between windy areas and where they were pushed 100 years ago. For us, it's been a good opportunity to to partner with them on a project that doesn't hurt the land and also um, provides income and can be a win, a real win-win. Do, do you have any such um, partnerships in, in the U.S. or are you looking at any? Um, yes, we do have partnerships like that um, that we've worked on in the past. And I would say that that's an area of high interest for us. I think when you start looking at the kind of environmental justice benefits that a project like this could bring to a community, I mean, it's staggering when you think about the number of jobs that a project um, that like a gigawatt scale renewable energy and molecule project, the, the number of jobs you can have, the types of ancillary benefits that come with shifting to a cleaner fuel, Uh, really making a spot kind of a hub for a new part of the energy industry. That is something that we, you know, we don't take that um, lightly and we want to make sure that we're doing that in areas that it makes sense. And so having a high wind resource, having a welcoming community, being able to have a partnership like that, that would be sort of first of its kind, bringing together energy industry and um, maybe a disadvantaged community or a tribal community, that would be very much of interest to us. We just are 
We're trying to make sure that the places we're looking for these projects are going to be positively impacted by them. Well, Ashley, Scott, thank you so much for your time today. It was great learning more about what you're doing and, and also hearing about the the kind of emerging opportunities that we're starting to see here in North America as well. So thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. I really enjoyed that one. I think I learned a lot about some of the uh, the challenges that you folks who are out there building projects actually have to go through. So what did you think? Oh, yeah, I mean, I was equally impressed. I mean, they're such a large entity and... Uh, it's, it's really great to see them actually moving forward. You know, their, their interest in the socioeconomic impacts and, and working with Native populations, I, I think, was just very heartening to hear. And, uh, yeah, I, I wish them luck. I, I'm, I'm hoping that this is very successful for them. One thing I wonder about, I don't know if you've been hearing about, of course you have because you're in the States, but a number of these rules in Texas or legislations that are very uh, bad for renewables. I mean, Governor Abbott says that he's not going to provide renewables. He's not going to provide incentives for renewables because there are federal incentives. But there's a lot of bills that would actually make a lot more red tape to the point to where building renewables in Texas would be pretty much impossible. The greatest green hydrogen or opportunity that I can see when I look at, at the U.S., because, of course, I'm focused on the coastal deserts, uh, is in Texas. So I, I'm wondering if this affects Apex or if, if Apex is actually a great ally um, because they have the strength and the, and the, and the um, size to have an impact, because I think jobs always uh, are a good argument. But yeah, it's, it's a little sad to see states actively going against their own interests uh, to spite the environment. Yeah. I mean, from what I've heard, and you know, I, I, I'm sure we, we could, could get Scott and Ashley back on and have them, have them explain their, their perspective and experience uh, right now you know, as they're, they're building projects. But ERCOT is still very, very strong territory for wind. The, the projects are still very, very, very competitive. And to that degree, maybe the state of Texas isn't going to provide supports and incentives, but I think ERCOT has been in a competitive market for wind, particularly for, for quite a while now. And developing and dispatching projects there is probably, I don't want to say easier because these things are never easy, but uh, you know, a, a known kind of process too. So to that respect, there are also you know operational challenges with com- which come from uh, developing very very large projects with a view to providing um, self generated load and and that can be complex in other in other jurisdictions. So I don't know, but I feel like you know given the volume of projects we hear being announced in Texas and and look we all know that announcements do- don't necessarily mean FID or steel in the ground. Mm. But, you know, given the volume of projects, given the the nature of the federal subsidies as well, I'm reasonably, reasonably bullish that that when it comes down to it, the Gulf Coast is going to do quite a lot. And particularly the the folks working and operating within ERCOT are are going to be pretty, pretty critical to to scaling up hydrogen in in the US in particular. So um, there may be something there in it, Alicia, um, for sure. But I, I wonder, I wonder how much this is uh, politics rather than uh, how shall we say practicalities. It seems it seems unlikely that 
suddenly this this territory might go from being strong for some of these use cases to to inherently weak. I think maybe the point is watch this space because it can move quite quickly. Yeah, I think memory is not actually what's in place right now. It, it, it's really the um, the bills that legislators are promoting right now in Texas that they're pursuing that would make it nearly impossible to develop wind and solar because of just so many layers of red tape. And who knows that that probably won't, hopefully it won't get passed, but a lot of things have gotten passed in Texas that, you know, were a complete shock to me. Um, so I, I think uh, it's, it's a bit of a worry, but, but at the end of the day, you know, you're not seeing this in Iowa, you're not seeing this in a number of other places that tend to not support the environment so much, but they definitely see the value of, of renewables in terms of energy. Um, so most of the states that have wind and, and solar, you know, are using it. So, so I think overall, it, it's, it's, it's probably going to be fine. But I feel Texas, once again, like, <laughs> is sort of, you know, cutting off its nose to spite its face. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe, maybe let's see, because um, I have a funny feeling if, 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 if it goes that way, there are plenty of other uh, markets who will be perfectly happy to accommodate these large-scale projects that would otherwise have been, been built and built. Yeah, there. very good point. But, uh, and, and, and I, that's great. I have a sneaking suspicion, though, uh, the, the, the good folks in the energy sector in the Gulf aren't, aren't going to uh, uh, give up that easily either. So there may be plenty of road left to run in it. But yeah, no, look, they're increasing burdens on, on commercially viable projects seems like a very strange um, <laughs> strange thing to do for a state that has such a strong tradition and history of uh, providing energy and providing that energy security. So, yeah. I mean, I guess that's, I guess that's the other point is that give an advantage to blue versus green because you, you have all of the advantages of IRA, but you also uh, have a, a very supportive state and you already have operations it's interesting. We'll see how it goes, but I'm pretty I'm pretty happy with companies like Apex because it gives a bit of weight into the argument, and they can prove a lot of jobs. They can prove a lot of impact, and so so I, I think uh, for me, uh, I'm um, it's great to hear uh, what's important to them and how quickly they're moving, and you know, in in what of course I feel is the right direction, and and obviously as everything about hydrogen, we probably agree on that. <laughs> So, so maybe a question for you with uh, your your developer hat on, or maybe maybe your finance and developer hat on. Ashley and Scott talked about the kind of the opportunities, but also some of the the kind of the challenges in accelerating these markets. How did you feel about those? Are there are there common strands that you're seeing in other markets as well, or was there anything that stood out to you? I suppose as somebody who also develops projects. Oh, I think worldwide permitting is a huge problem, and you know after that, you know in terms of just unnecessary red tape, definitely permitting processes could be a lot shorter. And, and then the worst of it is usually transmission. So the fact that, you know, to build transmission to go like, I don't know, not even a, a great distance can take 10 years, you know, that really impacts the business plan. You've got to, to really be making huge amounts of uh, income to discount that back to today's investment in order to, um, uh, to make it worthwhile. And, and, and those things, I think, worldwide, people are complaining about and trying to find ways to get around or speed up. And, 
you know, for transmission, it's don't build a new um, hydrogen pipeline, you know, just anywhere, just put it right next to the natural gas pipeline, because wherever that is, it's already cleared the area. So some, some different types of uh, solutions, I think, to, to get around uh, some of these really severe problems of very long permitting processes, just, just a lot of red tape. And it seems to be global. Yeah, there's an interesting follow on, I think, as well, which was, I think, the last question you asked around, you know, engagement with communities and, and kind of First Nations and, you know, the kind of um, the kind of social responsibility kind of aspect that is now, I think, probably more real mm-hmm. in a lot of this these efforts than at least, you know, historic experience of, of you know, that, that kind of engagement has been has been yeah. very severely lacking to to just not good fundamentally and now we're seeing folks taking a really proactive effort you know engaging in a in a very very proactive sense and and also broadly aligning to try and do the right thing as well mm-hmm. with with community stakeholders in moving these you know projects forward that are number one you know socioeconomically obviously advantageous but also Number two, do you do sometimes, you know, need that kind of uh, community engagement piece to really kind of uh, ensure that folks understand what kind of benefits can accrue to the communities, but also what the actual risks around project development particularly are. You know, the value of doing that well, I think, is starting to come through from from the way Ashley um, engaged on that and, and how, how you've spoken it in the past. It's one of the really encouraging signs as somebody who did some work in the mining sector and saw some of the uh, long-term negative uh, associated effects of that. But uh, yeah, that's that's yeah. a fair point, and and that's a really like a nice optimistic tone I think to end on, <laughs> which is uh, um, social license actually can give you a little bit of a shortcut because you when you actively engage in in the community, you're not just trying to find out what's interesting for them and what would help like make them happier and what kinds of things that they you can offer as a project. But they often provide you a lot of information and that you would otherwise not know that can be very helpful to to progressing a project forward. And then it just gives you the, the, the social license itself gives you just a lot more standing in most jurisdictions and communities. And I'm not sure Texas is one of them, but it is uh, around the world. It is becoming more and more important and more and more recognized. And almost it's, it's funny the social license is a shortcut now, whereas before no one wanted to do it because they thought it just required too much effort and they were trying to cut corners. But cutting corners takes longer now. And and, and that's actually a, a wonderful result. I think I think we have to end it there with cutting corners now takes longer because uh, that's, uh, that's a takeaway for, for everybody looking to, to move forward in the next, uh, next little while. But yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think it was a great one. That was Everything About Hydrogen, hosted by the team Patrick Malloy, Alicia Eastman and Chris Jackson. If you have a question for the Hydrogen team or any of our guests and would like to get in touch, you can shoot us an email on info at h2podcast.com or alternatively, you can follow us on LinkedIn or tweet us. Our handle is at About Hydrogen. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.